I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as usual by Ann Thompson, who has just returned from the wilds of Columbia. How did it go for you down there, Ann? Oh, that was really fun. I got to see three um, major cities in Colombia, which are, which are big ones. Um, Medellin, which used to be the sort of drug capital, which uh, has cleaned up its act considerably. And uh, uh, Bogota, which is the big uh, capital of like 8 million people up in the mountains. And... Um, and then uh, Cartagena, where there's a film festival. So that's where we wound up, right on the Caribbean. Uh, one of those places that Christopher Columbus discovered, you know, in the Indies back in the day. Right. Um, so really venerable and cool uh, location. Um, and I, I obviously the Colombian government um, sort of Chamber of Commerce and, and uh, Prohemahines, which is this uh, sort of promotional and developmental arm for production in Colombia, were basically... Uh, promoting um you know people to come there and take advantage of their tax rebates and their incentives and so forth so i saw some films at the festival and i can't say that i was jumping up and down they're sort of um you know you don't there there have been films in competition that it can but not for a long time most of the time there's like one filmmaker who's been in competition in can back in the in the 80s who who was doing very um uh, sort of uh, cinema verite kind of, you know, in the barrio, you know, kinds of, of gangster uh, reality uh, movies. Uh, the, the films are like that. They're, they're very, um, they're well made, but they're not uh, narratively uh, uh, innovative in, in, in the sense that they would travel. And one of the things I found fascinating as I talked to them, because you, you find this wherever you go, whether you're in the Czech Republic or, or any country that that isn't one of the major exporters of movies, you see that they have, even if you think about Latin America as this big, um, potential market they all you know except for brazil they all speak spanish you know right. it, it 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 isn't each of the countries has its own specific identity uh, its own cultures um you know uh, mexico is a very sophisticated uh film economy and so is brazil but but they they really don't um travel as much as you would think and someone like they don't regard guillermo del toro or or alejandro gonzalez inarutu as as mexicans anymore they regard them as Hollywood filmmakers, people who've gone over to the other side. And English right. remains the lingua franca that everybody, you know, if they want to export, they've got to shoot their films in, in English. They have a very successful television business down there. And, and I was fascinated by all of this, but, but it, it, it's just sort of, um, they're, they're really promoting, they're trying to build up the, the infrastructure and the uh, 
uh, experience of their own um, sort of personnel down in Colombia. So, so their cash rebates are designed to encourage people to shoot there and train their people there. Right. And then they're also trying to promote you know, everyone to, to just shoot there. I went to a film festival a couple of years ago called the Amazonas in Brazil that seemed to be doing something kind of similar. I mean, they really wanted to increase the kind of production that was brought there from other parts of the world. So the interesting thing about it was that the film festival was really designed more for people who weren't part of that culture. And to some degree, even though it was constructive for those of us who traveled there from other places, it was less constructive for the people who lived there. And clearly there is a film culture in Brazil. So one of the questions that I was left with was, okay, I see that you have the resources, but are you really spending it in the right place with this kind of film festival? You know? Well, they're obviously trying to do both in Colombia. There's no question. I thought they were being very smart about about what they needed to do, which has to do with changing the perception of the country as a whole, because we still sort of hold on to old ideas. It's, it's 20 years since it used to be the, the drug capital. Right. You know, it's not the same. And again, and, like um, the last and, we spoke. And it's a rich country. It's, it, it's actually I, doing very well. It's it a is. big, sprawling country. There's a lot of misperceptions about what Colombia is as a country. I mean, certainly some of the stuff that's understood about its history and its reputation comes from a real historical foundation. But, you know, like I said the last time we spoke on the podcast, I grew up going to Colombia as a place where my Jewish relatives had their Passover Seder every year, and that was my only exposure to that scene. So, you know, there are always multiple sides to every story, and I wonder if to some degree what we see going on with the film community in Colombia is a, basically a microcosm of what the country is facing as a whole. And, you know, while there might not be a ton of big global forces in the Colombian film scene. Certainly there are films coming out of there that are worth talking about. I mean, I remember seeing a movie at the Tribeca Film Festival just a couple of years ago called Manos Sucias, which translates as Dirty Hands. It was executive produced by Spike Lee, and it was a really expertly told kind of noir thriller set along the Colombian coast, and it was just a really terrific first feature as well, and the kind of thing that, you know, it was just basically proof that somebody equipped with the right kind of resources can tell a great story anywhere and uh, bodes well for the rest of the the scene. But uh, I also think, to some degree, the struggle to get films like that recognized isn't that unrelated to the struggle to get smaller American indies recognized. I mean, if you look at the films that were at the South by Southwest Film Festival, where I just came back from, now, to some degree, they're facing that problem as well. If, if they don't have big stars, if they don't have the most obvious commercial potential, uh, if you can't imagine an easy trailer being cut to them, then they're automatically going to be downgraded to, you know, less of a priority. And that's not something that can be rectified by any specific mandate. It's, it's a bigger problem with the marketplace for independent film, whether they're foreign language films or American films. So that was my trip down south. While you were in Columbia, I was in Austin for the South by Southwest Film Festival. And I I have to say, I mean, I found it to some degree, if not alarming, then frustrating to see so many movies that, while I like them quite a bit and may want to tell the rest of the world about them, they just don't have the same kind of potential to break out, no matter how much uh, they are well-received in that particular environment. You can go tell people that they're really good, but to some degree, word of mouth 
can just do so much, you know, and so it's misleading in some ways to be at a festival like that and to, to come across a great movie and assume that that's enough for it to get out there. The harsh truth is that no film festival can single-handedly make a small movie receive the attention it deserves. They all do that. They put, they make it, they create, they do that at Sundance too. They create a kind of priority list. I mean, the brutal truth of the matter is that South by does come after Sundance and they're picking, um, the best of what's left. And, and they're, they're, um, there's usually three or four must see movies out of that, uh, out of the new world premieres. And then there's a lot of great TV stuff, uh, uh, great keynotes. I mean, I thought that the Ava DuVernay keynote was terrific, um, and the Mark Duplass uh, keynote. He's always good. Um, and then there's always uh, basically, I mean, TV has become more and more prominent as it will be at Tribeca. I mean, yeah. this is just evident. It, it's easy as it's as it's going to be at San Francisco as well. Um, you know, there it's just that's where the good programming is. So the fe- the film festivals are. I was just noticing on Rotten. Tomatoes, by the way, when you look at opening this week on Rotten Tomatoes, they they don't just talk about movies, they talk about television, right. too. Well, actually, that's what I found really interesting about South by Southwest over the course of the nine years that I've been going, which is that you really do see the state of the convergence culture we live in today coming together in a realistic sense, that it's not an abstract concept, that TV and film and and different uh, kinds of media are all sort of merging into one cultural experience. And you see also the kinds of people who are really good at that coming out of the woodwork. I mean, we ran this piece about the Mark, Mark Duplass keynote at South by Southwest and obviously Mark Duplass is a big player. Who's, a, who's like the poster child, you know, for the new sort of, um, uh, what's the word I would use? I mean, the, I call him the multitasker, but he and Jay both are but the, the reality multitaskers. Is, yeah, he's the poster child, but I, what, I, what the point I would make is that when you are at South by Southwest, you see that it's it's everywhere. It's it's. It's the fluid. Everything's moving around. The technology is moving around. Even now, here, we were going to talk about this anyway. South by is the perfect, you know, you noticed that Netflix was buying, you know, films that were produced by the Duplass brothers where because they have an overall deal with the, with the Duplass brothers. Therefore, they got the movies. You know, they're buyers now. Netflix are competing. You know, earlier before the festival, they picked up a big project that the, that, that the uh, you know, Fox Searchlight, Carrie Fukunaga's new movie were supposed to get. Yet, you know, so so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of, of change in the air. But one of the things that's going on is that it follows, which was on the um, film circuit. Uh, festival circuit, you know, starting it was in, it was in Sundance. Excuse me, it was in Cannes. It was it was it was it was all over the place. Festival after festival, building up uh, incredible, um, um, uh, you know, buzz and great great reviews. It and it shouldn't have been I, such a shock when I they opened it, it after uh, all this time I, that it did really well. At the box office, and all week, Radius and Weinstein Co. and the exhibitors and the people that are supposed to show the movie on March 27th on VOD, the cable suppliers, they're all dancing around trying to figure out what to do because this is a movie that could do some business at the box office instead of going straight to VOD after two weeks. And actually, this is a film that we discussed last week, or I discussed with Sam Adams, our, our guest host, while you were out. It was our one of our picks for the week and uh, I think 
you can't underestimate the extent to which this movie is really well liked by a lot of people, not only genre fans, but people who see it as very poetic and skillfully made and playing with different kinds of genres. So it's a movie that works for many different audiences at once and, of course, many different critics. So the point is that this was Ray, this got rave reviews. It, it follows yeah, as a good it, horror movie, a, very, a stylish a horror good, movie, but it's a not smart even, filmmaker. Know, it's beyond that, though. It's what I would say is that it transcends the expectations of a horror movie because it's from a filmmaker who was not associated with the horror genre, and it's not a movie that exclusively plays like a horror movie, and so it ends up appealing to a much broader set of sensibilities. Correct. And that should have been an expectation that, that was apparent. I, what I find so interesting is that is that Radius seems to, Tom Quinn is a smart guy who's invested in the VOD universe, and so he set this up the way they did Snowpiercer. Two weeks, second-tier theaters, VOD. Um, you know, and then, you know, the theaters that will play movies that are heading for VOD. And now they've, they finally decided yesterday to push it back, after all, and open in a thousand theaters on Friday and, and get some money out of it. Of course, they're going to have to spend more this way, but uh, at least they'll satisfy the uh, audience with movies and theaters. Well, it's interesting. I mean, they do innovate in this space better than a lot of other U.S. distributors, and I think in some sense, this year's South by Southwest Film Festival offered a lot of movies that could benefit from that kind of innovation. If you look at this year's South by Southwest lineup, the best movies are really well designed for this sort of thing, uh, either because they have some sort of really particular fan-based uh, you know, foundation or because they could, through word of mouth and critical support, wind up becoming a much bigger sort of breakout story with the right dedicated strategy. I mean, the opening night film was a documentary, which is always, you know, a challenging proposition for a lot of different kinds of people, but it was Andy Timoner's documentary about Russell Brand, and it was really good. Uh, he didn't then come Then it out. got all sorts of heat because he didn't show up. He didn't like his he didn't, movie. He didn't come, and he said that he... He respected it and, and that it was just very painful for him. He needs to make peace with it. I mean, maybe there's more to the story than that, but when you look at it, yes. Didn't, didn't she tell us at the Sun at the Sundance post Sundance IndieWire party that she that she that he was upset by it? Well, I think that, she yeah, did. This is not a surprise, but right. you, you have to see the movie to realize why it's a little bit too much, uh, you know, to assume that you know the movie goes too far. I mean, it. it he can't confront the fact that he had a very public drug-fueled meltdown. I mean, a lot of that is, it just seems sort of superfluous because what's, what's interesting about the project is there were six directors, starting with Albert Mazels, who was the first one who approached Russell Brand a number of years ago, and the movie's dedicated to him, and it has this collage-like approach. But most Americans, including me and a lot of other people I spoke to, don't know what this story is because they know Russell Brand as the goofball in Forgetting Sarah Marshall or the the kind of wacky celebrity and uh, character in um, Get Him to the Greek. You know, and, and that's that stuff comes at the end of a really interesting set of developments where he was a, a very subversive stage presence who then moved into a freewheeling form of activism that he documented in his book. And you do get the sense that he really cares about making a difference in society, uh, that when he was in this very highly publicized, sensationalistic relationship with Katy Perry, 
he was more exposed to the juxtaposition between the kind of lavish lifestyle of the rich and famous and the kind of the lower classes around the world, the, the, the marginalized for, you know, third world side of the equation, and, and he really felt like he needed to draw that out in his activism, and has essentially abandoned uh, a more traditional uh, celebrity lifestyle in favor of following his own path, and even though there's a lack of clarity specifically to what his quote-unquote message is, the movie does make a pretty good case for it, and I think in the right hands it would tr allow sort of his his sensibilities to translate to an American audience that's largely unaware of it. And, and so it should be seen, I think, as a commercial movie in the sense that Russell Brand could be seen as a, a commercial name. But but um, I think most of the, the big movies at, at South by are commercial movies. So you had you had a, a Judd Apatow, uh, you know, train wreck. You, you had you had Mad Max, you, you know, you had you had a lot of mainstream I have to completely disagree with movies. you though because Spy. Yeah, but that's those are not that's not that many movies. It's like such a small part of the equation. Like that's where wreck, the attention goes. Well, that's, that's where most thing. of the coverage goes. I mean, that, but the the coverage may go there, but the truth of the matter is there's something like 100 or 103, I think is the exact number of world premieres at South by Southwest. And where did all the media that attended Southwest go? But let me tell you, though, that, that focusing on that point is essentially just, you know, stating the obvious, because obviously, you know, somebody's going to try to go and take advantage of the fact that South by Southwest is going on for marketing purposes. I mean, I could have tweeted something about Trainwreck, which I didn't bother to see because I'll see it soon enough. Frankly, there's a lot of really great movies that need the kind of discovery and dialogue surrounding them in order to bring them up to the same even a fraction of the level of awareness that's automatically coming to other kinds of movies. My experience at South by Southwest is that the more the merrier. I mean, I saw some really inventive movies that I'd love to see kind of continue to gain some exposure. And in an ideal situation, I would swap them for a lot of the stuff that gets more attention. But it's going to take some time. I mean, there was this movie called Creative Control, which is this black and white near future kind of satire about this uh, tech developer who basically invents a virtual girlfriend. And so it won a prize, right? It won a vision prize. Now, the movie that won the grand jury prize I thought was quite strong as well. It's called Krisha, and it's kind of a woman under the influence style uh, chronicle of this, this uh, middle-aged alcoholic woman who, who goes to visit her family and has this meltdown. Um, just incredible performance. Most of the cast is related and sort of playing themselves. But neither of those movies are easy sells. They don't have any, any stars in them. Creative Control has a funny kind of bit part for Reggie Watts in it, but that's not a big sell. Uh, it might go to the Cannes Film Festival, according to certain rumors. But these are movies that essentially only exist to the rest of the world when people share their enthusiasm about it. And in today's marketplace, that can't be understated, and it's exactly what studios are taking advantage of now, which makes it even harder. So what I find frustrating is that, yes, Trainwreck went to South by Southwest and got a great reception. It could have shown up somewhere else and gotten a great reception too. The fact that it went to South by maybe gave it slightly more positive or, or, or emphasized it in a certain way, but there's su such a bigger sort of grab bag of, of other things here. The 
perception that it's better to wait and figure out what's worth your time is maybe misguided because I don't want people to assume that that's the way that this stuff works. Cannes Film Festival is, is still, in spite of the fact that they get whatever they want and they aim for the best of the best, it's still going to be only one limited perspective of what's out there and they pass on things and things get sifted around or they aren't available. There's a lot of stuff that is maybe a little too peculiar or a, a, a bit too, let's say, eccentric or, or, or specific to the South by brand in the sense that, that it may not be able to travel unless people talk it up. And the, the film that won Krisha is one good example. There's a, a sort of documentary narrative hybrid I like quite a bit called Sweaty Betty, which is about uh, this low-income black neighborhood outside D.C. It starts out as sort of a documentary about their experiences, and it turns into more of a scripted story about these two teen parents trying to sell a dog. I just thought it was so funny and original and different in spite of the fact that it wasn't particularly well made, but that's the kind of thing, like that sort of discovery, it sort of makes you wonder where did this thing come from and why does nobody else know about it that makes the job really interesting. Even a movie like Uncle Kent 2, which you know a lot of people I think assumed was not worth their time if they didn't bother to see Uncle Kent 1, is something worth celebrating out of South By because this is a movie uh, that was partly directed by Joe Swanberg, partly directed by a guy named Todd Roja, who made a movie called Catechism Cataclysm, and it's about the animator who's the star of Joe Swanberg's movie, uh, Uncle Kent, basically trying to make a sequel to this movie that very few people saw. Speaking of the sort of VOD marketplace, this was a, a VOD release before there were many VOD success stories, you know, five or six years ago. It's really funny and, and, and strange and, and almost David Lynch-like in the, in the way that it keeps sort of shifting narrative strategies. But, you know, it's a movie called Uncle Kent 2 uh, that registers as a kind of inside joke for the American indie film community, so I don't see it traveling very far. At the same time, I can, I've convinced a number of people over the past week that it is worth their time and they've had a great time with it. So, you know, for me, that's what makes the, this stuff interesting is, is to sort of push beyond what seems like the obvious kind of process by which you discover movies and then take a risk on something and realize, oh, yeah, you know, there is a much bigger equation. There were some commercial titles at, at South By that, that still haven't been picked up. Um, there was this movie with Sally Field called Hello, My Name is Doris, which, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's my kind of movie. It's got good reviews. But it's, it's, it's strong. It's strong. It's a much different kind of role than, you know, the last time she got a lot of attention was for Lincoln. And this is a, a much more kind of vibrant turn for her about this 60-year-old single woman, sort of like the... Um, the daughter type of character in Grey Gardens. She, she lived her whole life with her mother. Her mother passes away and she starts looking for love. And, and it's, you know, it's so rare to see a movie with that kind of protagonist. So to have this first-rate actress like Sally Field in there, it's directed by Michael Showalter and he does a, a fine job. The movie is, is sort of just okay, but I think that she really tackles it in, in, in a, on a great level. And so I think if, if it gets out there, I mean, that's just as much something I would celebrate as some of these more peculiar things that I've been talking about. So, Well, um, maybe we should move on to uh, what our picks are for, for this week uh, weekend. Um, I'm not um, picking Danny Collins or The Gunman, but of the stuff that's opening, those are the two that are worth discussing. The Gunman I find fascinating because it started out as a kind of 
studio picture, Joel Silver, you know, that it was developed uh, for a long time. And it's directed by this guy, Philippe Morel, who did the Taken film and uh, B District 13. And he's, you know, he's an action director, uh, French. And for Luc Besson on a lot of things. And um, what's interesting about it is that they're taking Sean Penn, who was interested in it early on, and put in a lot of work. He actually gets a screenplay credit because he was involved in trying to beef up the character of this sort of um, uh, security guy who's who's working uh, behind the scenes, you know, as a sort of uh, mercenary. Um, but he he's working with NGOs, so that whole scene in in the Congo and and the world uh, sort of this is one of those espionage thrillers that moves from exotic location one exotic location to another. Very well shot, very beautiful. And I and I found myself sort of a tr I wanted to see this movie, even though it got really bad reviews. It's at twenty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And I found it interesting that I was still still compelled to see this movie. And it was because of the cast. It's Sean Ben, Javier Bardem, Idris Elba, tiny role, not important. Um, you know, Mark Rylance. You know, these are people I love. You Although know, to notably watch. the the tra the poster for the movie, you don't even see Sean's face uh, Sean Penn's face, the main selling point is that it's from the director of Taken. Right. Well, it, it's a it's it's um it's a very conventional, uh, old-fashioned espionage action thriller, and perfectly well made. And the question is, why is it getting such bad reviews? And I think the answer is that Sean Penn is such a good actor. <laughs> That <laughs> he can't play that kind of movie star, you know. It's He's interesting. He's just not a movie star. He's I wonder a, if it, there's actor. some sort of uh, attempt, as as Liam Neeson did yes, a few years obviously, ago, to move into obviously. that. Obviously. That he wants to cash in yeah. on some level and see if he could become that guy. Well, he's not going to become that guy. He's Sean Penn. He yeah. can't become that guy. But that, but that said, the movie isn't bad. It isn't as bad as they're all making it out to be. Well, it's it's that kind of movie that ends up being my catharsis when I'm in between festivals, so I'll probably check it out in the next few days, and I'll let you know. If it's and then I'd be curious to hear what you think. And then Danny, I'm not making claims for it, but I, I enjoyed myself. And then Danny uh, Collins is, a, is another case where um, a really good writer um, who, well, let me put it another way, a, a writer who had a hit uh, aimed at the aging demo, uh, Dan Fogelman, and the hit was... Um, Last Vegas, which I watched on a plane, and it's terrible, you know. But again, I was sort of indulging myself on with these actors that I that I like. This case, it's Al, Al, it's Al Pacino as an aging rocker, and the best thing in the whole movie is Bobby Cannavale, who plays his son and who can't do anything inauthentic. And I really enjoyed watching him more than uh, more than anything else. That one will probably do okay with the uh, with the adult audience. I would suggest. So this is Fogelman's direct debut. And I, the first release for Bleecker Street, is that right? Correct, yeah. So that should be interesting to see how... So they're aiming at the demo, this demo, because they picked up out of uh, Sundance the, the Blythe Danner movie that, uh, that, that got some good reviews there. I'll see you in my dreams. Right. Uh, this is the name of it. So, so what are you recommending this week? Well, as, as it tends to happen, I mean, a lot of the stuff that, I, that ends up making its way to theaters that I like are things that I've been championing for a long time because I see them at festivals and then, you know, 
the distribution market being what it is, a lot of times it, it takes a while. And so one of the movies opening this week, I think it actually opened on Wednesday, is uh, something that was at last year's Sundance Film Festival in 2014. It's called Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter. It's directed by David Zellner with um, a screenplay that he wrote with his brother Nathan. And the Zellner brothers are these really great kind of quirky filmmaking duo based out of Austin who've been making features and shorts for years. Um, really kind of bizarre, funny stuff. Uh, Goliath and Kid Thing were the two features they've done most recently, both of which also played at Sundance, but they were on a much smaller scale than this movie, which uh, I believe... What was the name of the one with the girl that was uh, looking down the well? That's called Kid Thing. So Yeah, that was weird. Their, their stuff can be a little bizarre, but, but the truth is that based on the piece that we ran this week, I, I believe it took them about 10 years to make this movie. And so they were working on these smaller films with, with a more limited set of resources in the meantime. But Kumiko is another level. I mean, it's a beautiful film that's also on some level a deadpan comedy, but also deeply tragic. And what it does is it uses as a starting point this, this myth of sorts of this Japanese woman who watched Fargo and thought that the story about the briefcase being hidden in the snow was real and then basically quit her job and moved to Fargo in search of that briefcase uh, that gets buried in the snow. And uh, using that as a starting point, they craft this really interesting psychological drama starring Rinko Kikuchi in, I think, a really effective performance uh, about this woman and sort of the isolation she feels from the rest of the world and the, this, this fantasy and the excitement that she derives from watching the movie and creating a goal for herself. Now... Is she mentally ill or is she, you know, on some level, you know, like a Don Quixote type of adventurer chasing after this impossible ideal? I mean, they don't really clarify that, and so reactions to the movie have been different with some people thinking, you know, they're making fun of this woman on some level. I don't think that's really the way that it comes across. I think it's just it's a really interesting study of how you, people can get lost in their own stories in this sense, literally. And uh, Alexander Payne is an executive producer on it, and I think to some degree it, it has that sort of subtlety to it that you find in his movies where there's a, a certain kind of absurdity in play, but also a very human, uh, grounded set of emotions in play that, that allow it to, to work in spite of some of the more incredulous development. So I really recommend people check that one out. The other one that I would single out is an Argentine film called Jauja, which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last year. It's from a, a filmmaker named Lissandro Alonso, who's made some pretty experimental stuff over the years. It's never really been widely seen unless you go to a lot of festivals, mostly outside the United United States, uh, but Jauja was produced and stars Viggo Mortensen, so it's actually a much bigger project than he's done in the past, and uh, it's this very abstract, expressionistic story um, about this Danish uh, adventurer of sorts and his teenage daughter in the 19th century or so, uh, who go to this land, this sort of barren landscape, searching for this uh, this hidden town of sorts that's supposed to be, you know, sort of like an Atlantis type of uh, mythological place and uh, dealing with a lot of mysterious forces that are just outside the frame of the movie in, in a literal sense because it's shot with the Academy ratio. It's a really beautiful 
image that, that sort of carries the movie throughout. And at a certain point, the daughter runs away and the father goes after her and has to deal with this sort of inevitability that she's growing up and moving away from him. And so the, there's something almost Tarkovsky-like in the way the movie deals with, in it, with this ongoing kind of stillness deals with uh, the themes that, that are at the center of it. And, you know, it's still not the, mo the easiest sit. I wouldn't say it's a commercial movie per se, but it is, I, on some level, a more accessible version of what Lissandra Alonso has been doing for the last couple of years. And, and it's a really beautiful experience, so I hope people check that one out as well. But, you know, if you're not in a town where... Uh, where it might be showing up. It'll probably be on VOD soon enough, so um, so look for it there. I will look forward to that one. Um, I, I, I've been wanting to see that one for a while. It just keeps eluding me for some reason. In I haven't time. seen Cinderella. I'm, I'm way behind. <laughs> will you catch up on that one? I'll catch up on The Gunman, and uh, we'll have some, some bigger movies to dig into next week. Later, Anne. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.